when I saw the theme, Distinguishing Spirits, I dived into my filing system and brought out three sermons on angels and three on demons. And then I looked at the passage that Graham had given me and thought, I may not be able to go there. But they're connected with all that we're going to be talking about, and I draw your attention to that. I may have space a little later on to allude briefly to that. If I asked you what your favorite gospel was, I wonder what you would say. Well, you can only have four choices, unless you know something that we don't know. John has always been my favorite, not because we share the same name, but because I think he wrote it at the end, or after the other three had been well written, and he was reflecting in a very profound and deep way about who Jesus was and the significance of Jesus in that context, in that culture, and indeed, right down the years and the decades to today. I am the way, he said, the truth and the life. Do you know how significant the I am sayings are? But this came from a man who was fairly volcanic. His nickname was, as his brother, they must have both been a handful, John and James, sons of Zebedee, uh, sons of thunder, Boanerges. So they were explosive sort of characters. And I say that because you know enough about John's gospel to know that the dominant theme, or at least one of the dominant themes, is love. So here's that contradiction between the man who's writing about love, and we'll come to 1 John 4, which is the passage Graham chose in a moment, but we'll come there and listen to the words of a man who was quite volcanic and had learned through his relationship with Jesus to allow that spirit of Jesus to change him. And it was a lifetime's process Right at the end of his life, he was in Ephesus. Some of you biblical scholars will know he was there looking after Mary. Do you remember Jesus on the cross? Look after me, mum. Well, he didn't quite say that, but that was the thrust of what he was saying. And tradition has it uh, well attested, I believe, that in fact John took Mary, and there is a tomb in Ephesus where Mary died, almost certainly, but John went to Ephesus, and he died there. But that personality, that volcanic personality, was uh, always there. And quite frankly, let me tell you, the personality you were born with, you will wrestle with all your life. Can I hear an amen to that? Yeah, do you know that about life? You will be changed and transformed, but you will wrestle with it all your life. He was taken into the public baths, because that's where they did their bathing in those days. They didn't have a little room upstairs where you got in your own dirty water and washed yourself. Strange English obsession about bathing. But they went into these public baths. 
uh, at Ephesus, and as he went in, he suddenly saw a heretic there called uh, Corinthus, and he suddenly rushed out of the public baths. I'm hoping, though the scripture, uh, though the literature doesn't tell us that he was reasonably modestly attired, but he rushed out because he thought God was going to judge this heretic. And I'm jolly glad God doesn't judge heretics straight away. Because believe me, this one has been a heretic at times, and so have you. Both by perhaps what you believe and certainly by the way you behave. The last record we have of John, and this is important to get the context and to feel the spirit of the man. The last record we have of, of, of him in extreme old age and he lived to well probably well into his 80s maybe even his 90s he used to be he was so weak they used to carry him into the church they didn't have wheelchairs that they carried him in and put him on a seat right on the front row and his preaching days were gone uh, there were others well capable of doing that at Ephesus but if they asked him for a word from God, he would say, little children love one another. And someone said, John, haven't you got another word for us? You said that last week and the week before. And he said, it is the last word of Jesus. And it is the most important. So here's this man focused on love as our Caribbean American Caribbean bishop reminded us just recently at the wedding focused on love and recognizing that love is not just enough it is enough but it's not all that needs to be said and we need to have a much wider and broader picture. So listen, turn with me, please, uh, if you want to in your scriptures or listen as you choose. Because we're going to turn to 1 John 4. And we will move from there towards the end, depending on how time uh, proceeds. We're going to talk about these verses from chapter 4. And I'm going to give you some advice. Well, in fairness, it's not me, it's John. Right? If John was standing here this morning, I've got his script in front of me. I did invite him to come. He couldn't come. But he gave me a script, and this is what he wants to say to you. First of all, a word of advice. Secondly, an affirmation he wants to make and he wants you to make. And it's not just an intellectual thing. It's something that's absolutely fundamental to your spirituality and mine today. And then I want to apply what is said. One of the problems about all the material I've got prepared on angels and demons is the very fact that God, when he created angels, and he created them, and they are powerful, they're more powerful than us men and you women. They are his creation. But he created them with free will. Now, I don't understand the mystery, either the metaphysical or the theological mystery of evil. That was the thing Billy Graham said was going to be his first question to God when he got to heaven. Where did evil come from? 
And we don't know the answer to that fully. We have an indication uh, in the scriptures in the Old Testament that rebellion took place in the heavenly places. And you can't see that, and I can't see that, but I'll allude to it later on, because you will be impacted by it, and you will from time to time have connection with it inevitably if you're going to walk with Jesus. And the reason I refer to the angels and the demons having free will is very simply, I'm going to give you advice, but you have free will and you can do exactly what you choose with what I'm saying and with what John says. And you will. You'll make the choice. I wish it was simply that I could command you or Graham or whoever has the privilege of standing here could command you and you would do it because it was right. It, was, it doesn't work like that. It invites your personal cooperation, your personal attesting, and your personal commitment to free will. And that's why he says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Here's my first point. Don't believe everything you hear. Does that sound like a sermon? Don't believe everything you hear. We listen to classic FM in the morning before we have breakfast and say our prayers together and we use Celtic prayer. And even on the adverts on classic FM, which I recommend to you if you, whatever you do in the mornings, I love it. But there are adverts on there which are total nonsense and are lies and I listen to them every morning and maybe I'm getting a grumpy old man. I'm saying, I do not believe it. And they get away with actually having it on the radio every morning. Well, that's fairly trivial in one sense. But don't believe every spirit. You will hear in society which is broken and decaying at an unbelievably fast rate, I'm talking about our society, our culture, which is dominated by so many things. I'm not saying there aren't true things said, but there are so many things that are wrong, that are ungodly, and that need to be heard and resisted. You are to take his advice. I am to take his advice. Don't believe everything you hear, especially spiritually. Don't you believe a single word I say or Graham says or anyone else says if you can't find it attested in Scripture, right? I have no right. I might be well educated, but I have no right nor Graham, nor anyone else who stands here, to simply believe you believe because it's been said. You need to test the spirit of both the person who says it and, and here's the interesting thing, he gives us a very simple way of testing what the spirit says. Look at the scriptures, 1 John 4. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because in this decaying culture we live in, there are many, many false prophets out there. 
Yes, there are many false prophets not speaking the truth, speaking their own personal opinion, sometimes adding God's name to it as if that gives it credence. It doesn't give it credence unless it stands the test that Scripture says here. Many false, false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now that Jesus Christ come in the flesh is not some intellectual argument. I mean, I've had to teach this to theological students. It's not that you believe the right thing about Jesus. He wasn't just a human being who was adopted. We know the error of adoptionism. He wasn't docetic. He wasn't just appearing as a human being. He was a real human being. But here's the rub. And this is the difficulty for people. Sometimes it's an intellectual difficulty. It's mainly a spiritual difficulty. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I hear lots of people tell me there are many ways to God, and I usually say, yes, there are, but they all lead to Jesus. They are. They all lead to Jesus. So in looking at this whole issue of distinguishing spirits, you need to look, first of all, to what I've put in my notes is a fully downward mobile Jesus. Think about it. God became flesh, right? So don't devalue your body, it's not unimportant. Don't overvalue it, our present culture. This is not David Beckham-esque exactly, but there's a good deal more than health and wealth and youth to life. As a 75-year-old, I can at least say amen to that. There is. And our culture is dominated by wealth and health. And it is sickening. Because it is not true. It's partial truth. But it is very dangerous. So here's your first piece of advice. Don't believe everything that is said to you first. Test it by whether it keeps Jesus central. Use a nice big word. Your faith has to be Christocentric, has to be focused exclusively and continually on Jesus. Secondly, he makes an affirmation, and this, in a sense, is even more important. He says, if you look in verse 4, Dear children, you are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, when you travel as widely as I do and you're involved in theological education some, somewhat, this is so, I, want to, I mustn't get locked here, but I want to say something so passionately. We do not live in a universe that is dualistic where God and evil are fighting and we're not absolutely sure where the victory is going to be. We do not live in that type of world. 
The Christian faith is about a victory that has been won by Christ that is eternal, it is cosmic, it is pervasive right around the world, to which someone should say, Amen. Amen. And you see, if you do not know that true, and I mean intellectually sure, but deep in your heart, you're going to struggle in your spiritual life. Because when you meet spiritual opposition, as you will, when you meet the demonic, as you may or may not, you will hear about it, you are, you're going to be in a position where you're never absolutely sure how this is going to work out. I love Billy Graham, safely home in heaven, as you know now. One of the things he said, and for those of us who try and rescue, uh, re uh, sort of work with eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, and I believe Jesus is coming, is so, so very, very near. But for those of us who believe in, in that, you've still got to recognize what Billy Graham said. He says, I've read the book. And in the end, Jesus wins. Right? And wherever this world is going, and frankly, it frightens me as a granddad, uh, at one level intellectually, because my kids are growing up in this world, my grandchildren are growing up in this world, I watch it sliding right off the edge. Historically, you watch what's happening in the Middle East, and you wonder how much longer until Jesus returns but it's still true that Jesus is the victor, okay? But there is a battle. And Graham says this very regularly. I hope you can identify it. The victory is won in Christ now in your life. John, you were telling me right at the beginning what you'd sense, that freedom that is there, always there in principle. We need to embrace it. We need to live it. We need to walk in it. But we need to recognize that that victory is ours and we can live there. Application. I don't know when I started, but is that clock telling the right time? 12 minutes past. Am I all right? I'll carry on. Advice? Test everything. Affirmation? Jesus has won, is winning, and will win the final victory. There is a battle going on of unimaginable proportions. And when you follow, I constantly on internet, with pastors literally all around the world who are telling me of what is going on in their, in their lives and in their ministries. And I literally do mean all around the world. And we have very little idea of the pressure the Christians are under today. But how do we apply this? We don't live in this frightening world very deeply. Preach North's a wonderful little secure place to live. It is. So how does this apply to us? C.S. Lewis, who was probably one of the greatest Christian apologists, brilliant mind, still can't quite believe he didn't have something in his mind when he wrote Chronicles of Narnia, but there you are, he said he didn't. But a brilliant mind, wonderful Christian, 
So there are two great dangers that Christians face when it comes to this issue of evil, spiritual warfare, demonic. Two great dangers. One is to be completely ignorant of it and think it doesn't matter at all. I've met a lot of Christians like that. I have to tell you there is a corresponding danger on the other side of which I find myself involved quite a bit of people who go to the extreme and they are demonically they are focused on the demonic in a very unhealthy way. Now those subjects need to be addressed and I guess I've had to think about them and deal with them in a, a certain way but please Will you remember Jesus has won the victory, right? So when you're in a struggle, as life will be a struggle, believe me, if you couldn't be a Christian, you're going to have what's called life. And on top of life, you're going to get all the spiritual issues that go. So this idea of come to Jesus and be happy is just a no-no. It doesn't work that way. Come to Jesus and find meaning and purpose, yes, but on top of that, if you walk as a disciple of his, you're going to know something about pressure. You are. So, Frank Peretti, I recall reading all his books and trying to help a church not to get things out of proportion. Remember one of my friends, uh, Wagner, getting sucked so profoundly into this mapping of territorial spirits. And again, I'm not dismissing the, the importance of that. I'm simply saying that we need to apply these things wisely and well. I've alluded to the fact that I've got stuff on angels and demons and I'm not even going to go there. But listen, if you're going to go looking what the Bible says about the demonic and about the angelic. And remember, they are God's creation. They have a different function. I've kept a record down the 40 years I've been in ministry. I've kept a record and I have five people that I know authentically in my personal judgment have actually met and if not, well, yes, in most cases, seen and been affected by the angelic, right? There are angels that surround you and you may know nothing about it. That's the grace of God. Every evening, Rachel and I say our Compline Prayer, which is a Celtic tradition, Phil. You're very aware of the Celtic tradition. And it surrounds us with the angelic protection. And I know the Holy Spirit dwells within me by grace. And there is a security in that. And I will return to that in just a moment as I finish. Let me say a word about the demonic because it's possible that you may meet the demonic. And in using personal illustrations, please don't misunderstand my motivation. About four years ago, most of you know I've been in and out of India countless times and whenever you go into a third world country particularly a polytheistic one where there's a strong Hinduistic where they believe there are myriads and myriads of gods you can also get the same thing in Africa 
It's not never as pronounced in Africa, but in the Far East where polytheism controls, uh, you will meet the demonic absolutely for certain. And I just want to say something about that because you need to know, and I'm simply wanting to illustrate, Jesus is victor, okay? So that ever, if you ever move into any of these areas or you are confronted with them, you do not need to be frightened. It's not my intention to frighten anyone. I've been kicked by the Holy Spirit into the deep end in so many situations, and this experience was such. We're in India. I was ministering to the pastors, which is what I thought my brief was, and the guy who was just gone to heaven, I think I told you, <coughs> told me <coughs> that he'd uh, sublet us out, as he put it, to uh, a church of South India about uh, 70 miles away from Chennai, to a place called Viridahanaga. And I said, well, what are we doing? He said, well, he's organizing everything. And I said, well, we've come to minister to the pastors. He said, well, no, you go. He, he's, he's a fine, godly man. He's just planted five churches in the last year, and he's got massive congregations. He's a man of God. Church of South India, by the way, is fairly liberal. But he was a passionate, spirit-filled evangelical. And we got there. And as we got there, there was a great big, big notice outside the church, right opposite the Hindu temple, with my picture and the picture of my colleague on. And we were conducting a deliverance ministry. Me? Not my field. It's not my field of excellence or experience. I've dealt with this, and we had to deal with this. And I'm simply wanting, as I tell the story, to illustrate that. We had excellent services, and then we got to the Sunday, and we had a morning service, and I preached in the morning. And the pastor got up at the end, and he said, many of you have got neighbors and friends who are Hindus. And most, as you know, most of the women in Hindu relationships are looking for God. Interesting in terms of what you said, Graham. It is women who are more sensitive to spiritual things than men. Shame on us. Shame on us. It's true, though. Wherever you go around the world, 67% of the congregation is female. Doesn't matter. I think we've probably got a very, very good demographics, but I'm getting off my subject. Back to Virida Haniger. He said, will you bring your uh, Hindu uh, lady friends, uh, uh, um, that, that can be misunderstood. Let me explain. <laughs> the, the wives of neighbors of yours who are Hindus who you know are looking for God. So they came into the service. To me, it seemed a perfectly ordinary explanation <coughs> of the gospel and the power of the name of Jesus. And at that time, he simply said, let them all come forward, anyone who wants to receive Jesus. And about 50 or 60 of these Hindu women came. Now listen, culturally, you're very, very aware. You don't go around sort of putting your hand, I'm a fairly touchy person, as you know, but you're very sensitive in that issue. There were about 40 or 50 of them came forward. And I had 
promised myself I wouldn't touch any of them for the very simple reason that I didn't want there to be any misunderstanding. And as they came and stood in front of you and prayed, you could see them back away. And then, in many cases, they, were, they crashed to the floor as we prayed in the name of Jesus. What was interesting at the end, and this is to encourage you to believe that when the Holy Spirit lives within you, he is visible both to the demonic and also to other people who actually watch your life. Because these women who were ministered to uh, spoke to the pastor, and the next day he told us something that was profoundly, profoundly moving. He said, all of the women said, I'm not just talking about me, there were several others of us praying. Every time they came forward, or as they came forward, the people praying were surrounded by this effulgent white light, which was the Holy Spirit. Okay? So if you ever... And don't discount the possibility because I'll tell you one other story as I finish. If you ever meet that, you need to know that Jesus is victor. Before I came to my last pastorate, I uh, was chaplain at a healing center, as you know. And a woman came to us, being referred to us by social services, very disturbed, very emotionally disturbed, and I spent time with her and uh, brought Rachel in as well because we were very, I was trying to cover my back if I'm honest, a bit of a coward, uh, maybe I'm careful. Uh, and we were both aware, and this is discernment and this gets very near what you were saying Mark about spotting the difference, it's so real but so subjective, we were aware that there was a real problem. Within 24 hours she'd run away gone back to one of her friends and we thought no Satan you're not going to have her so we went and collect her brought her back and she was reluctant but she came in the end she wasn't being forced and as she got out of the car a most powerful voice said you can't have her she's mine <laughs> my wife still laughs at me apparently what I said was she's not yours She's Jesus's, on your bike, which is some very spiritual language. <laughs> and the woman was totally released. And that was because of the victory that is ours in Jesus. One final thing to say as I finish. We're in a battle. Ephesians 6 is all about that battle. Yeah? And it talks about putting on the whole armor. And I'm not going to expand that passage. Someone else can have that on another occasion. You need the helmet, you need the sword, you need the whole lot, don't you? And I taught students to preach. And I've listened to many very gifted preachers. And I can recall one very passionate Irishman talking about waking up in the morning and putting his armor on. And it was all very passionate and very real and he meant what he said. And part of what he said was absolutely true. But listen, here's the punchline. Don't ever take your armor off. 
right? And I'll tell you why I'm saying that. Because in Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I do know Greek scholars, they tell me the instruction, put on your armor, is in the air, is tense. Do it once for all and never, ever, ever take it off again. Now, I know the imagery creaks a bit when you think about lying in your bed with armor on and all of that. But look, it's an analogy, it's a picture. You will get into trouble in the spiritual warfare that goes on around all of us if you are not protected by the armor of God. We have the Holy Spirit within us. But it was the Holy Spirit through Paul who urged us to put on that whole armor. Every night, Rachel and I say our prayers together before we have our last night. Late night cuddle and settle to sleep. Too much information. <laughs> we have Compline that we use. And it simply reminds us that we're surrounded not only by angels, but by the grace of God. We are utterly, utterly secure. So you hear the advice. You hear the advice. Test the spirits. You hear the affirmation, the victory's won. Jesus has won that victory. It's up to you now and up to me to apply that in our lives.